Okay, at this time, would you please open your Bibles with me for today's scripture reading, which comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. Uh, we're continuing in our sermon series called The Sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Again, that's Ephesians chapter 4, 17 to 24. Uh, you can also follow along on the screen. This is the word of the Lord. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, creating after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Good morning. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And as Tim said, we're continuing our Sunday morning teaching series where we're studying the sufficiency of Scripture. If you think about the authority of Scripture, that means that God's Word is the highest authority. Sufficiency means it speaks to absolutely every area of life. That God is not interested in simply talking to a couple isolated topics for you and me, few limited portions of life, but that his word forms the framework, the lens, the perspective for how we understand all of the rest of life. For today, we're going to think specifically about why do we need this? Why do we need God to speak to us about life? Now, when you ask that question, you realize there's actually two reasons. One of them is because he just knows things that we don't. And in his kindness, he tells us things that there's no other way that we could ever figure them out. That's what you see him doing way back in the Garden of Eden before sin enters the world. God makes people and then does what? He immediately talks to them. He tells them things that it doesn't matter how long they take. They're never going to figure those things out on their own. He tells them things like they are made in his image, that they reflect him in some way that's different from all the other creatures in creation. Tells them things that, like his image requires, both male and female, in order to reflect him. Tells them that he has put them over all of creation, not to misuse it, but to care for it, to work it, to bring out all of the potential that he's put in it. So what's he doing there? He's teaching them, telling them things they can't figure out on, on their own, teaching them things about himself, teaching them things about themselves, about who they are, about why they're here. And you think again, they are perfectly sinless and at the same time completely ignorant. They're dependent on him and his words to, to navigate the life that he's given to them. So even when humanity was innocently ignorant, we had to have God's word in order to know how just how to be human. As you all know, Adam and Eve rejected his words. They listened to a different authority, put a different authority in place of God's, and now you discover it's possible to have a different kind of ignorance. 
It's one where you don't know what you need to know, but it's an ignorance that's no longer innocent. Think here about what Jesus prays from the cross. In Luke chapter 23, he's hanging there and he prays, Father, forgive them. Why? For they know not what they do. You notice the combination there. Father, forgive. There's something here that needs to be forgiven. There is something that is wrong, for they know not what they do. They don't know that they are unjustly murdering the perfect Son of God. He made that abundantly clear while he was here on earth, so much that people again tried to kill him multiple times, equating himself with God, made it absolutely clear that they should have recognized him. In other words, on, at the moment of the cross, he's saying they are ignorant, but it's a culpable ignorance. It's not innocent. It's not a mistake, not an oops. It's not neutral. It's real ignorance and has to be forgiven. It's really morally wrong. Their minds are not thinking the way that they should. And Jesus recognizes that they are morally accountable for that wrong thinking that they need to be forgiven for where it's led them. It's a culpable ignorance. And so we now need to, God to speak about all of life for both of those reasons. One, because we're created, we can't know what our purpose is unless he tells us. And secondly, because our minds now take what we do know and we twist that, we distort it, and we need him to straighten that back out. Now there's an important theological phrase for this that I think would be helpful for us to know, because this way of thinking about our humanity runs directly counter to how our modern world thinks. The phrase, and, and it's going to strike you a little bit odd at first maybe, the phrase is the noetic effect of sin. Think, what, what does that mean, noetic? It means having to do with the activity of the mind, with the activity of thinking and reasoning. And so the noetic effect of sin refers then to how sin messes up the way that we think, just like it messes up every other part of what it means to be human. In other words, if you want to think about human beings in the Garden of Eden as a stream, cool mountain stream, absolutely pure, when sin enters into the human race, what's it like? It's like pumping sewage into the source of that mountain stream so that everything downstream is now impacted so that every part of a human being is affected by sin. So after sin enters the world, our bodies don't work like they should. That's the physical effect of sin on us. Our moral compass doesn't point the way that it should. That's the moral impact of sin on us. You can keep on going down the list. Our will doesn't work the way it should. Our emotions don't feel like they should, and our minds don't think like they should. It's the noetic effect of sin. This was really weird for me when I first heard this. I'm a product of the Enlightenment. I would not have been able to have told you that, but I very much grew up believing that human beings on our own can think perfectly. We can think rationally, we can think clearly, so that we understand things pretty much as they are. And I grew up believing that, sure, you can get something wrong stuck in your head, you can think the wrong thing, but that there's nothing wrong with the mind that's doing the actual thinking. I grew up thinking that the mind functions just fine. And so I put my faith, my confidence, like 
Rene Descartes in my ability to think. Never questioned it. I would have said along with him, he's pre-enlightenment, but I would have said along with him that my identity is in my thinking ability. I think, therefore I am. And then I go to seminary and I get confronted with the noetic effect of sin. And I sit there thinking, whoa, what is this? This is really weird. What do you mean my mind doesn't think like it should? What do you mean that my thinker is broken? And then you start reading scripture. And you start seeing this unpacked over and over and over again. That our minds are not neutral. That they are now miswired in a way that always moves them away from seeing God as he is and from seeing God's world like he sees it. Run through a couple of them real quick. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. The inclination, the very start of thoughts. Other translations will put it, the inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. God looked down. He saw that our minds are never neutral, but that each movement of our mind is predisposed toward evil. He saw that our minds are bent. Or as Romans 1 puts it in verse 18, that in our natural state, human beings suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God's shown it to them. Suppress the truth. That means that we see what is true. We know it to be true in that moment and immediately, simultaneously, we suppress it. We reject it. And three verses later, because of that, verse 21, God says their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. It's not that people can't think. We can think. It's that our thinking becomes worthless. It takes us in a direction that doesn't produce real goodness. We still have a mental apparatus. We can still think. We can still reason. But the natural mind now has a bentness in it that moves it away from God and from the things that God loves. 2 Corinthians 3, we have hardened minds. Chapter 4, we have blinded minds. We have minds that don't work right because they can't work right. Other passages in Scripture will talk about depraved minds, corrupt minds, unspiritual minds. Minds that from God's perspective, as he looks down at us, have a really big problem. Yes, we can still reason. We can do math. We can study how to help bodies heal. We can build intricate electronic devices. But we cannot reason our way to God, and we can't get to what God loves and approves of. Because from the start, our thinking is flawed. From the very first moment, as Genesis puts it, that we start to have a thought. Or, as our passage today says, Ephesians 4.17, that our thinking is futile. That if God does not rescue us, does not give us spiritual life, we have no choice but to live in the futility of our minds. That we are both ignorant and culpable for it and that we can't escape it. And so we need him to speak to us about what's really true. Now, to get us a little bit better 
on board with this. We're going to think about that futility from three different directions today. First, what does God mean when he says our, futile, our thinking is futile? What's it look like? Second, what is it that causes our thinking to be futile? And third, what's the remedy for futility? Three things for today. What's futility mean? What causes it? And what's the remedy? First, back in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So from God's perspective, what characterizes futile thinking? We'll look at four things here today. First, that people are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. So you know this. People have a certain understanding, a way of thinking about life. God says it's darkened. They see as though the room has no lights on. They don't realize that it's dark. And so they don't see what's really there. And so you have to picture people trying to navigate this dark room. They're bumping into people, bumping into walls, tripping over things. They think they're doing fine because they're not aware that they're blind to the truth of the room, blind to the truth of their own blindness. And the proof that they're blind to the truth is that their thinking, their understanding, does not lead them to God. They're alienated from the life of God, alienated from Him. Not that they actively think about, okay, how do I re reject God? It's just that they don't take Him into account when they think about life. They don't think about what He's doing, don't think about how to interact with Him, and they think that's normal, that that's just the way it is. And you experience this every day. You especially experience this if you're a student. If you're in a secular school, middle school, high school, college, what do you do? You go to class, study history, psychology, math, biology, chemistry, physics, astronomy, whatever, and you're immersed in this darkened kind of understanding as you study each topic and never once think about relating it back to God just doesn't even enter your mind. It's as if each one of those topics stood on its own and didn't need him. And so you find yourself studying those things, never once asking, how is this connected to God? The God who made the whole world that I'm supposed to be studying right now. How does it relate to him? How does he affect it? How does what's going on here affect him? In that moment, you're experiencing that darkened understanding, the natural bent of the human mind that moves your thoughts away from God so it's as if he doesn't even exist. Or you experience it when we, as your parents, tell you to study and get good grades, not because we want you to see God's fingerprints clearly in creation, not because we want you to understand the heart and mind of this amazing God as he displays himself in what you're studying, not so that you will be better able through your studies to glorify him and enjoy him both now and forever, but we tell you study, get good grades so that what? You can get into a better school, so that you can get a good job. We tell you to study and to get good grades as if 
God doesn't exist. As if his existence and his activities have nothing to do with your existence and your activities. That's darkened understanding when we do not connect our advice to you, to the God who put you in that classroom. And our minds go so easily in those different directions. That's how we come into this world. We are pre-programmed. We have minds that generate understanding, but that understanding moves us away from God himself. It's one aspect of futility. That aspect grows second out of the ignorance that is in us, caused by our hardness of heart. Think, okay, what is that? It means there's something wrong with us inside, that something that's hard, something that influences how we think, that resists God. And because of that, we're ignorant of what's right and wrong. Our hardness of heart means that we lose the ability now to discern between good and bad. Our hearts no longer convict us because they're hard against God. It means that we're not that naturally open to God's ideas, that when we hear him, we tense up, we flinch away from him. That's the idea that Paul has as he talks in Romans 7. He explains there the effect that God's words had on him. Verse 7, he says, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law, if it were not for what God has said. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law, if God had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. You know, have you ever had that experience? You hear from God, do not covet, or something like that, and immediately your mind goes the opposite direction. You start formulating all the objections for why that can't really be true and why you need to go somewhere else. That's hardness of heart. When that rules you, it affects how you think. You think opposite things away from God. You lose the clarity of right and wrong, and so you can't distinguish between them any longer. And you end up choosing what's not good because your thinking has become futile. Third aspect of futility, you become callous. You give yourself up to sensuality. What's that mean? It's that you become insensitive, calloused, to feeling things like you should feel them. We'll talk about it differently. We'll say your conscience is seared. You, doing the wrong things just doesn't bother you like it did at one time. And so you give yourself up now to sensuality, to doing what feels good to you. And again, we all know what this is like. Think about that thing that you struggle with. Pornography, drinking or eating too much, exploding in anger, uncontrollable spending, whatever it is. Isn't it true that in each one of those, you and I have said to ourselves, okay, this thing that I'm doing, it's not great, I know that, but I've got it under control, and so it's okay. I've drawn lines for myself that I will never cross. I'll never look at stuff like that. I'll never eat or drink that much. I'll never be physically or verbally abusive like that. I'll never impulse buy like that. I'll never binge spend like that. We've all thought those kinds of things and done what? We've crossed the line every time we've drawn another line. Why is that? 
Because when you do something once, something wrong, you become callous, insensitive. It no longer bothers you like it once did. And so you give yourself to it again and again and again. And your mind colludes with that. You think to yourself, well, there's a new line out there that I'll draw, that, and I won't cross that line. And then you do. That's futile thinking. It's broken thinking that just doesn't work. Fourth aspect of futility that God mentions here is that you become greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And I read that and I think, okay, finally, one that does not apply to me until you unpack it. Greedy, what's that? It means that you never get enough. You can never feel fully satisfied. It's that sense of always wanting more. Impurity, what, what, what's impurity? We think of all the gross, disgusting stuff. Impurity is bigger than that. Impurity is when you don't engage this world in a healthy way. When you don't engage the world in a way that's good for you and for those around you. Instead, you try to use the world. You try to use it to fill yourself up. You use people, you use things in a way they were never meant to be. That's impurity. And the combination of greed and impurity means that you just keep trying to get more and more and more of what you want because there's that emptiness inside you're just trying to fill up. Which again is futile thinking. Why? It never occurs to you to think, wait, if I wasn't satisfied with having some, if I'm greedy, why do I think I'll be satisfied if I have more? Isn't it logical to think that the amount, whatever that amount is, probably won't satisfy me either? But you don't ask that question because your mind is bent. The logic of greed comes in and says, well, the problem is not with what you are trying to satisfy yourself. The problem is the amount. Just let's get a little bit more and more and more. And so you end up being on this never-ending hunt for more. It's futile. It will absolutely disappoint you. But you don't think that. And so you keep trying. Those are litmus tests that tell you sin is affecting how you think. It's when your thinking does not lead you to God. When you instinctively flinch away from what God says is good. When your conscience grows harder, not softer, and when you find yourself just endlessly wanting more and more and more of what never satisfied you yet, things that all of us have firsthand experience of, that's some of what it means that our natural way of thinking is bent, futile. Second, for this morning, what causes that? If you go to the second half of this passage, there's a contrast between your old self and your new self, between the natural self, the way that you come into the world, and the person that God makes you to be. And you learn that this old self, verse 22, is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now, we've talked about desires many times at renewal. The word for desires, epithumia, is what? It's worship language. Doesn't mean that it's always a bad desire. But it's a desire that is so compelling that you will pursue that thing, whatever it is, over everything else. So when we're talking about the old self, the way that you were before God changed you, changed you so that you would want Him more than you want anything else, 
When we're talking about the old self, that means your heart is set on having something in the physical created world, and it wants it so much that it will control what you do. And so you'll take a good thing in this world that God made, work, relationships, studying, sports, whatever, and you will raise that good thing to an ultimate thing. And when you combine those desires with the word deceitful, now you have the sense of being controlled by something that lies to you. Something that promises you satisfaction. That tells you, if you wrap your whole world around trying to get whatever this thing is, it will fill you up. It'll make you happy. It'll give you the good life. But because it's deceitful, because it lies, when you pursue that, you end up being emptier than ever. Verse 22, it corrupts you. Verb there means to cause harm, to ruin. It destroys you and it destroys your life. Let me give us an example of what this looks like. Let's say that you make success your highest goal. Maybe getting good grades, your highest goal. Rising up the corporate ladder, highest goal. Making a ton of money. Your heart believes what? That success will satisfy you that it will finally raise you up high enough that you'll get the approval that you've been looking for. And so you desire this like you desire nothing else. What happens, for instance, if you do that? You discover that it corrupts your life, that it ruins your life. Because either you will succeed or you won't. Take them one at a time. If you don't succeed, then you're crushed. You feel stupid, worthless, like you can never do anything right regardless of how hard you try. Tempted to think that your life is over. It's really hard to deal with if for a while you've been successful and then suddenly you're not. There are these regular articles that you read about students who go off to elite universities and end up killing themselves. Students who were incredibly successful at everything that they did in high school and then they go away and they discover there are other really incredibly gifted, successful people out there. And that when you sit in class with them, sometimes you're not as successful as they are. You discover you don't always get the grades that you're used to. And some, for some people, that leads them to think that life would be better if it were over. See, that's the deceit of desiring being successful because it gives you absolutely nothing to fall back on when you're not successful. Now, there are obviously a lot of other elements that get factored into all of that. There's the pressure that you feel from parental expectations. There's the bias of social media that shows you everybody else's life looking way more successful than your own. There's the pressure of grade inflation, the expectation that higher grades are relatively easy to get. Those are all the external pressures. They're really there. But at the end of the day, the real problem is our desires. It's about what you and I do with those pressures. It's about what we worship. We all know a lot of people who don't buy into those things. They don't live to be successful. They don't desire that above all other things. They're not controlled by being successful. You realize, okay, you can resist that, but many of us don't. Many of us buy in. 
we're sold the idea of being successful by other people. That's true. And at the same time, our heart desires it. Even though it's deceitful, even though it ruins people's lives, and it's easy to find that. Make success your absolute goal in life, and if you fail, you risk ending up in despair or worse when you're not successful. Or, make it the center of your life, and you risk actually succeeding, only to, to discover then that you're now on this endless treadmill, that each new exam, each new project is what? It's another opportunity to fail. And that's when you discover that you are only ever as good as your last success. And that you've now put yourself on life course to have an endless test of your abilities stretching out in front of you. Infinite number of ways that you might not pass. What is that? Successful? No, that's stressful. That's anxiety producing. It's exhausting. I'm speaking here from personal experience. Think, is the next sermon going to be anywhere near as good as I hope the last one was? Did the person that I counseled, did they, did they actually like what I said? Is it helping them grow? And I can so easily find my worth and value in what I do, in being successful. And then it's no longer about loving someone else. It's now about using someone else. It's exhausting because I'm measuring me by how well I do, not by how much I'm loved by my God. I don't think I'm the only one in the room who's tempted like that. For the sake of the argument, however, let's just say that maybe you're one of those people who is always successful, has always been, and always will be. Do you know that that's going to affect how you think about other people? that you're going to tend to look down on other people who didn't make it like you did. You won't mean to do that, but you'll end up without a lot of compassion. You'll tend to think, well, yeah, it's hard to succeed. <laughs> you just have to put the work in, like I did. And you won't have any idea that you're condescending and proud, even when other people start avoiding you. That's not a successful life. And then at some point, you're going to discover that age gets everybody in the end. That there are things that you're no longer going to be able to make yourself do as you get older. There are going to be new things you just don't have the bandwidth to learn anymore. There's going to be new projects you just don't have the energy for. There are going to be new competitors who are younger, smarter, who are now going to be the ones who succeed. And you're going to end up settling into the background long before you're ready to retire. Is it bad to work hard, to aim high, to want to make something of yourself? Absolutely not. Unless you make it what you're living for. Make it your highest desire, and it will ruin your life. We're not going to do this today, but you can do that same analysis with anything else in this world. Take anything good, relationship, having fun, raising a family, take anything good, elevate it to what you live for, turn a good thing into an ultimate thing, and it'll just crumble in your hands. And the worst part is that your mind will keep egging you on in that same direction. 
even when it's not working. Your mind will keep thinking, trying to convince you it'll work this time, even though it hasn't yet. Your darkened understanding will kick in, and you can't see that God has something way better for you because you've become alienated from Him, something that He would offer. And so you'll think, well, yeah, let's go for it again. What, what else is there? Your hardened conscience will not be ashamed or embarrassed to keep crossing various lines, trying to get what you want, because you keep assuming that something on this planet just has to satisfy you inside. And the problem must be that I just didn't get enough of it yet. According to the way God thinks, that's what our natural minds are like. Point three, here's the glory of how God thinks. He only tells you what's wrong so that what? <laughs> so that you start hungering for the remedy, which he then tells you about. What do we need when the old self is ruining our life, when we can't fix ourselves because we can't even think correctly about what's wrong? We need verse 23. To be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Since our thinking is tied to our desires, what has to change first is this basic underlying worshiping core. There's a fundamental break that has to take place, a reorientation from worshiping things to worshiping our Creator. And for that to happen, we have to become this new self which means that God has to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. You look there and you realize that's a passive verb, that the new self is created, that it doesn't create itself. You're not called to create a new self for yourself. You don't, you're not responsible to generate this new desire. That's something God has to do. He has to create something, make something in us that wasn't there before. And it's only then that our thinking can be renewed, that we can learn then to think along the same lines that he does. But then look at that verb for renewed thinking. You see that it's also passive. It's that your thinking has to be renewed, which again points outside of yourself. So you're twice dependent on God. You're dependent on him to make you a new self, and then you're dependent on him for that new self then to work correctly. There's a little bit of difference between those two uh, verbs. Created, if you study the Greek, is actually a one-time thing. Renewed is not. It's got more this sense of you have to have this over and over and over and over again. So that if you want to escape futile thinking, you have to have a constant renewing. We need God to keep empowering us and then keep speaking to us as we're wanting to hear from him. What's this look like on the ground? What does verse 24, righteousness and holiness, look like when applied to the life of the mind? I'm going to give you a list here. For someone who's a Christian, it moves you first to gratitude. Because when you see how God actually thinks, it means that you were bumping around in the dark, ruining your life, and God saw you when you didn't see him, and he wanted more for you than that. He wanted you to live in the light, and so he changed you at your core so that you could now learn to see what you didn't before. And because of that, you're now incredibly grateful gr to him because of how he thought about you. 
Second, it moves you to humility regarding how you think. It causes you to have some healthy skepticism about your own thoughts. You're willing to stop and you're willing to say, let's, let's make sure this is how God thinks. Just because it makes sense to me doesn't mean that it's actually right. And so you have more humility about your own thoughts. Third, that then moves you to be more teachable. You're willing to go to Scripture to see how God thinks. Why? So that you can align with Him. It makes you more teachable, hungry to learn. And fourth, this is now an expression of your relationship with God. Since you're dependent to have a renewed mind in order to think well, you have to ask Him to help you think. And so you start to relate to Him while you're thinking, while you're studying. It becomes part of worship. You ask Him for His insight, for His wisdom. You engage Him as you think about the larger world. Fifth, this is somewhat counterintuitive. You slowly become more confident in what you think because now you have a solid foundation on which to think. You're not trying to figure out life from the inside and sort of taking guesses at it. You're not caught up in every new and improved way of thinking that just sweeps across society. But you're learning who you are. You're learning why you're here. And you're learning that from the God who made you. You're learning that from the God who thought that the universe would be missing something important if you were not here. You're learning these things from the God who wanted you. Sixth, and related, you're less proud, less arrogant about what you think, about the positions that you hold. You're more confident, less argumentative, less defensive. Why is that? Because you know that you only know what you do because you were given an incredible gift. You were given a new self one that actually loves the thoughts that God has. And so the things that you now think are not a reflection of you, not a reflection of your own glory. They're a reflection of God and His glory. It makes you easier to be around, easier to have a conversation with. Seventh, you're more patient with others. You realize that unless God makes other people new, then their thoughts are never going to make it to Him, just like yours didn't. And you realize that you can't talk them into that place. You can't create a new self in them simply by talking. That has to be supernaturally done for someone else like it was for you. And so you give people space. You share the things that God has taught you. And then you watch to see if other person's interested, if God might be at work in them, creating, renewing them. Eighth, you're hopeful. You're weirdly optimistic about people. You're willing to risk having conversations with other people about God and about his thoughts because you think to yourself, man, if God can change me, if he can create a new self in me and keep renewing my mind, he can change anybody. And so you don't count anyone out. You share God's free thoughts freely without pressure looking to see what he might do next. And lastly, ninth, you're compassionate. Jesus did not free you from futile thinking because you thought so well of him and you wanted him so badly. 
He freed you because he loved you, because he thought about you, and he thought about your real needs. And one of the perfect thoughts that he had was he did not want you stuck in your futile thoughts. And so you're now compassionate with others who seem stuck. Because you can relate. You know personally the horror of living in hardened, darkened ignorance. And so you long for something better for other people, even when their thinking leads them to treat you badly. You have compassion for them, like Jesus had compassion for you. It's the same compassion that moved him from heaven to earth, that moved him then from earth to the cross, where he hung suspended between heaven and earth, where he bridged the gap between God and his people. Suspended, but still on the cross, thinking clearly, despite everything that he was going through. Why? There was nothing wrong with his desires. He loved God above all other things, wanted to do his will more than he wanted anything else, and he loved you. His neighbor loved you as he loved himself, wanted for you what he wanted for himself, and because his desires were perfect, he thought perfectly that what people needed was to be forgiven, that their ignorance did not excuse him. And his thinking led him to the cross because it was there that he chose to make a way, to make a way so that the old self would be put to death in his people, no longer in charge, so he could give each of his people a new life, one that would be ongoing, renewed. Romans 6 tells us that since we're united with Christ, that just as he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we may walk in newness of life. We can be raised from spiritual death if we're united with him. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so we may no longer be enslaved to sin. That's the gospel. That when you trust Jesus to rescue you from your deceitful desires, he unites you to himself. And in his death, your old self dies. It no longer has the power to control your desires. And in his resurrection, your new self comes to life the new self that longs to be compassionate to other people. Think about what Jesus is doing there. Think about it like Jesus thinks about it. Feel the love that moved him to do that for you. That will change how you live with others, even with those who still get tripped up by the old self or those who are still trapped in it. Lord Jesus, thank you for thinking about us when we did not think about you. Thank you that your thoughts were not how to end our lives and how to get rid of the hassle that we are. Thank you, Lord, that you thought about how to rescue us and to redeem us, to give us a hope and a future. Thank you, Lord, that that is open to us, whether we've known you for five minutes, five years, 50 years. Thank you that it's open to us if we haven't known you before. Thank you, Lord, that you are no respecter of persons, that you embrace everyone who comes to you, and that you offer the same exact thing a new life with new thoughts. Lord, we are very grateful today and humbled. Thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen.